0: Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapters 1 and 2. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The word of the Lord.
1: This morning we begin a sermon series in the, Paul's letter to the Romans. So over the past year, we spent the entire year in Acts. Um, I'm sorry, Luke and then Acts, which was really all one big book in the original writing of it. We carry on now with Romans, and it's not a direct connection, but last week we finished off with Paul on his way to Rome and then spending a couple of years in Rome. This letter to the Romans was actually written a couple of years before he went to Rome under house arrest. It was a letter preparing for his visit to Rome. And he was laying out the gospel and specifically dealing with issues between Gentiles and Jews in the church in Rome that he had never visited. So he's laying out the issues that they're dealing with and in the process is laying out the basics of the gospel. And so over the next eight weeks or however many it is through the end of uh, August, we're going to be looking at the message of the gospel as Paul writes it down in Romans the way that the book lays out is the first couple chapters are dealing with the problem of humanity. Then the next couple chapters are the plan of God for salvation. And then it finishes off with our life in Christ. But this morning, it's delving deep into the main issue, the problem that we have, and why Jesus was necessary at all. So I'm gonna open us up right in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which is sort of Paul's thesis statement for the entire book. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What's amazing about this is, Paul has to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We don't tend to think about that, especially if you are a churchgoer, if you've been in church for a long time. We throw the word gospel around in a positive light. It's a good thing. It's what we're all about. But Paul has to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's using a term there that on on a basic level is very obvious. He's not embarrassed by the gospel, but shame and honor was a key part of that culture's understanding. And so what's going on here is Paul is saying, I am not offended by the gospel. It does not scandalize me. In 1 Corinthians, he mentions that the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. It's an offensive thing. How is the gospel offensive? How is it a stumbling block, something to be ashamed of? Well, think about the basic message of the gospel. The basic message of the gospel is we are so sinful that we need to be saved and salvation is a free gift by grace for all people. That message offends moralists and religious people because they basically think their decency gives them an advantage over others. And the gospel says, no, you're just as sinful, and the gospel is free for everyone. The gospel tells us no one can be good enough and that all of us need Jesus. He is the only way. This, of course, offends the modern person, every American, because we want autonomy and we value our self-expression, and as long as I'm earnest in the way that I'm going and I'm a decent person, we should all be able to get in. What do you mean Jesus is the only way? If the gospel doesn't offend you on some level, you may not fully understand the gospel. The point that Paul is making and even saying this is that believing in the gospel is not natural to us. Rejecting it and rejecting God is. What ends up happening? Because we reject God and the gospel, here's how Paul writes it out. In verses 18 to 20, he writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, men and women, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We suppress the truth about God. How? For what can be known about God is plain to humanity because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So Paul is saying, look, there is not a person out there who is without excuse. You can look around the creation, and the evidence is there, from the lofty mountain grandeurs to the the beauty of the ocean, to the minute details of a newborn baby. There is a maker, there is design, it is evident. But even if that's not the case, he goes on to say there's an internal testimony too, not just the outward. He says in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they knew God, they would not acknowledge God. This is that internal testimony that every human being has. Our conscience, our will, our soul, our heart. That part of us that experiences love or beauty or joy and says there's got to be more. We're not just animals. There's something else going on here. That something else is in that internal testimony inside of us that says yes, yes, there is a God. But we suppress it. We suppress that truth by nature. You know, here's the story with conversion. If you come to faith in Christ, it is not mainly because you were convinced. My experience talking to people is scientific proof or rational arguments will not convince somebody to believe in Christ. It will not convince somebody to believe the gospel. Those might be the things that they hold up to say, I can't believe in your faith because of X, Y, and Z. But even though I can present logical arguments or things that align with science, somebody still doesn't believe, why? Because converting to faith, coming to faith in Christ is not about logic only. It's actually mainly about realization, aha. It's mainly about the internal testimony, admitting what I've known all along but was hoping wasn't really true unbelief at its root is suppressing what we all know to be true. That's Paul's claim. C.S. Lewis talked about it in his conversion experience. He was an atheist and brilliant writer, a professor at Oxford, and it wasn't the proofs that convinced him. It was the internal drawing, the way he couldn't settle his heart. He writes, you must picture me alone at Oxford night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. So he says in verse 20, the second half, so they are without excuse. They are without excuse. By nature, we are all apart from God. Under his wrath, and we stand condemned. We engage in what I call the great exchange. Some theologians do as well. We choose not to worship God and choose instead to worship something else, and God gives us over to those things. Here's how it reads in verses 23 to 25. They, all humanity, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We exchange the glory of God for anything else we can get a hold of. The truth that we know in our hearts for any lie will tell us to make our lives more controllable. We would rather worship and serve the creature, our own needs, our own wants, than the creator. Philosophers say that humanity, not every philosopher, but humanity is a telec creature. In the past, I've called it a teleological, but I've looked it up. Telec is actually the better adjective. Telec means that we are goal or purpose driven. We have to live for something. You can see this in psychology, when somebody is severely depressed, they have forgotten what to live for or they don't feel like there's anything worth living for, right? We are telic creatures. We have to have something that is ultimate, something we're living for, something in which we find our meaning, in which we place our hopes, in which we calm our fears. There's something that we do in life, or some person or thing, in which we find ultimate. And in that, we find our purpose, our goal, our direction. Paul makes this claim that if we do not worship God, it's not that we won't worship anything. We will worship something or someone else. David Foster Wallace, the acclaimed literary critic and writer who died a few years ago, he was an agnostic at best. But in his address to Kenyon College, about 10 years ago, he said this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. The problem with humanity, according to Romans, according to the Bible, according to the Gospel, is a sin problem. But our sin problem is primarily a worship issue. Who or what is really your God? We suppress the truth about who God is. And so Paul tells us in verse 18 that the wrath of God is already being revealed. How is the wrath of God being revealed for us suppressing the truth and worshiping other gods? Because God gives us over to what we want most in life. That actually sounds like a good thing, but it's not. We read it in verse 24 most explicitly. Therefore, because we exchange the glory of God for images and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, therefore God gives us up to the lusts of our hearts. Now this word lust is the Greek word epithumia, Epi means over, on, or against. But in the context of this, it actually means over, controlling, authoritative, a lording thing. And thumia is your will or your desire or your wants. Your epithumia is your controlling desires, your greatest longings, your deepest desires. It's the thing you're actually living for. We tend to think about sin as things you do wrong, vices, right? Murder, adultery, stealing. But according to this, and the way the Bible talks about it as a whole, sin is not primarily breaking rules, it's living for our desires instead of for God. David Pallison wrote about this in his article from a number of years back when he said, Has something or someone Besides Jesus, take entitled to your heart's trust, fear, and delight. It is a question bearing on the immediate motivation for our behavior, thoughts, and feelings. The motivation question is the lordship question. Who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or a substitute? When it comes down to it, the question that we really need to be asking in our culture this day and in our own lives is the authority question. This is the one where actually all the issues hinge on. And it's the the one where all of us struggle. Every one of us does. The question of the authority is this. Who determines what is right and good and true? How do you determine what is good and right and true? Scientific evidence? What everyone in the culture believes? God? God? Your own feelings? Who is your primary authority for determining what is good and right and true? For modern Americans, pretty much every one of us, individualism and autonomy are ultimate. I must have freedom from you to do what I want. And as a result, the ultimate authority pretty much always, including for Christians, is me. Okay, Let's talk about sex. Paul writes about it in one of the most explicit passages. You can read it on your own. But remember what we started talking about. Worship, authority, okay? The Bible says that we are embodied souls. We are not just a mix of genetics, of glob put together, driven by pure animal lusts alone. We are embodied souls made in the image of God, in the image of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who three become one. We are embodied souls. What we do in and with our bodies matters. God always invites us to life to the full when we follow his will and his design. Sex is meant to reflect and glorify God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to reflect and glorify God. Sex is not primarily for personal discovery or self-fulfillment. And within God's purposes, marriage and celibacy are where true fulfillment are found. The Bible and Christianity have been clear historically, globally, orthodox, faithful Christianity, biblical Christianity for centuries and across the globe still to this day says God's intent for sex is one man, one woman in a lifelong exclusive covenant of marriage. Everything else is outside of God's intention. This is hard because the church has done this very poorly. The church has been condemning and mean, has elevated sex over other things. Who cares about materialism? Justice? The poor? But God's word is clear. So is Christian history. When we're dealing with sex, know this, desires your inclination, your orientation is not the issue. What you do with your desires is. And the question we have to ask, not just with sex, but with everything in life, is what if God's word says no to what you want? even to how you are wired. Know to what you think will make you happy and know to that which everyone around you already does. What do you do when that's the case? My experience is this. We actually don't trust what God offers us in Christ is better than what we get on our own. We don't trust that what God offers us is sufficient to get us through life. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we see something we want. We assume God is withholding it because he is not good and trustworthy. And so we take and we eat. And guess what? We don't die. We actually enjoy the fruit. God must be wrong. We suppress God's truth and choose time and again, not just in the area of sex, in every area of life, choose time and again to define good and right and true by ourselves on our own. This is true, not just, not just of sex. It's true of what we do with our money, where we find our identity, how we establish relationships, what we do with our talents, our career, our kids. What Paul is getting at here is not about sex. It's rather the idea that any desire can become our functional savior, our true God. How do we know? Because he goes on to talk about a whole bunch of other things that we do wrong. In Romans 1, 28 to 32, he lists a whole bunch of other ways in which we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve our own desires instead of God, in which we follow our over-desires. He says envy and deceit and gossip and disobeying your parents and being ruthless. The question we should be asking is, why do we ever do anything? Why do we lose our temper? Why are we jealous of somebody else? Ultimately, it's because something besides God is filling our heart. We're turning to something besides the gospel to give us purpose and meaning. We don't trust what God offers us enough. We need to get control and so we get angry at people who threaten our control. Or we need approval and so we're jealous of people who are getting praise when we want the praise. The issue is a worship issue. Sin isn't just murder and adultery and lying, all those vices, the Ten Commandments. Sin is anything that becomes ultimate greater than God in our hearts, in our lives. Work, family, approval, grades, you name it. In fact, Paul goes on to suggest that even being good or religious, even being good or religious can keep you from God, can be a way of rejecting God, i.e. sin. In Romans chapter one, Paul is talking about idolatry and immorality, he's talking about what the pagan Gentiles do. So he's going on and on about the Gentiles, right? Here's the things they do. They exchange the glory of God for a lie, they worship and serve these other things, therefore God gives them over to all these immorality things. But in Romans two and three he turns the tables and he starts talking about the idolatry of law keeping and religiousness. Here he's addressing the Jewish audience in Rome explicitly. And you can almost imagine if the Jewish audience is reading this in Rome, they're hearing chapter one and they're like, yeah, those Gentiles, they're bad. All those immoral things they do, their sexual immorality, their ruthlessness, their murderousness, the way they disobey their parents, we would never act like that. We know the rules, we're good Jews, we obey the law, we go to synagogue, we pray, we would offer sacrifices at the temple We do everything we're supposed to do, not like those pagans. But in chapter 2, Paul turns the tables, doesn't he? He says in chapter 2, verse 1, You have no excuse, you who judge, for in passing judgment you condemn yourself. When Paul says passing judgment, it's not judging between right and wrong, good and bad, truth and lie. It's rather the view that others deserve God's judgment, but you don't. See how bad they are? They deserve God's judgment, but we are good and faithful. We do the religious thing. We don't. Paul suggests that there's no grounds in the gospel for ever feeling that way. In verse five of chapter two, he says, because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath on the day of judgment. Okay, now note this. He uses the word hard and impenitent which in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is almost always used of pagan idolatry, okay? When somebody is guilty of idolatry, they have hard and impenitent hearts in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Paul is now jumping that forward to religious law obedience, to being good, to following all the rules. Following all the rules can be a way of having a hard and impenitent heart to God. Religious people, which is many of us, (laughs) have a tendency, we'll reject immorality and the worship of things like power and money, but the struggle is religious people tend to find their identity and assurance and hope in their goodness and their moral record. Tim Keller, writing about this, said, the heart of the gospel is that God's righteousness is a gift to be received. When we rely on anything but Jesus to make us right, we are refusing to accept the gospel. Relying on our obedience of God's rules is as much self-reliance and God rejection as ignoring God's rules. Do you get what's being said here? Religiousness or being good can be just as much an idol as power or sex or money. Religiousness can be just as much an idol in our lives as power or sex or money. The root of all sin is a worship issue. Who or what is Lord of my life? The problem the gospel says is that we are all sinners. We didn't read this, but in Romans 3, 10 through 12, where Paul is actually citing Psalm 53, which we did read, Paul claiming the Old Testament, applying it to the New, having talked about pagan idolatry, immorality in every way, breaking all the rules, and then keeping all the rules and religiousness, says no one seeks God. No one is good, no not one. That's the sum of the human condition We are all sinful and fall short of the glory of God and are under God's wrath. The interesting thing about God's wrath is we tend to think of God's wrath as like striking people. You know, I'm going to hit them with lightning, the Sodom and Gomorrah thing. I'm going to destroy everything. But in Romans 1, Paul suggests that God's wrath is revealed in the freedom he gives us. The freedom to do what you want, to pursue your own end, is God's wrath being poured out on you. Hear that again. God's wrath being poured out on you even now is the freedom to do what you want, to carry out your own desires. And the idea is this. If hell is God's wrath forever, perhaps, perhaps, what is being hinted at in eternal judgment is being given over to your unhindered desires forever And ever and ever. The further we pursue our desires, the less they satisfy. You take anything in life and make it your ultimate. If it is not God, you will find it ultimately will not satisfy you. You will need more and more and more. This is obvious in things like drugs or alcohol or pornography. It's not as obvious in things like career success, accolades and praise, the adoration of your kids, health and well-being. But the same is true. The cycle of addiction is the cycle of our lives. If hell is actually being given over to your heart's desires, the question I ask is, if, my, if, if following the lust of my heart in a 24-hour binge of selfishness is a pretty horrible and ugly thing, what might it look like after a thousand years with no constraints or a billion years of following everything I want and constantly needing more and never being satisfied? C.S. Lewis wrote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end thy will be done the damned are in one sense rebels to the end the doors of hell are locked from the inside Romans 3.9 Paul gives the summary for all humanity are Jews any better off not at all we have already charged that all, 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 both Jews and Greeks, both the religious and the pagan, are under sin. Every person has always been under sin. That word under is actually imagery borrowed from slavery and bondage. We are all under a power, like a master that we can't escape. What Paul is suggesting What the gospel says is that we need a greater power to overthrow our master, our other gods, the things that control us, our over-desires that we've been given over to and that we give ourselves to. We need a power greater to set us free. And the hope of the gospel that we'll see in the upcoming weeks is seen in verse 16 of Romans 1, that the gospel... The good news of Jesus Christ for this problem, this bad news, is that the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what your past is or how deeply entrenched in slavery to your own passions you are. The hope of the gospel is that there is a power greater. <sighs> so, today's message a hard one to hear? It's hard for me too. But until we fully grasp the problem, the world's problem and yours, you won't ever fully grasp the gospel. You cannot partway understand our problem and fully understand the gospel just as you cannot partway kind of take in God's law and truth and fully worship God. Closing question, what do you want? What do you actually want in life? Do you want to be set free? Do you want the assurance that your life matters? That this life isn't all there is? you know in your heart of hearts, even if you don't believe in this gospel, that you will not find true freedom and lasting assurance in your career or your marriage or the approval of people or sex or money or being good. The only thing that can calm your anxious heart and mine is the only one who can actually set you free. Let's pray. God, if this is all true, it is not an easy thing to hear. That we are all by nature dead in our trespasses and sins. That we all by nature worship other things. God, be merciful to us. Cleanse us from our sin. Help us to see the things that compete for the allegiances of our heart. Soften us by your spirit to receive Jesus and him alone as our hope and our salvation and our Lord. Amen.